0: Sometimes it only takes one ordinary person at the right time, right place, to change the entire course of human history. Don't believe me? Take Stanislav Petrov. On September 26, 1983, Lieutenant Colonel Petrov was filling in for a sick co worker on the overnight shift of the Soviet Union's air defense forces. Three weeks earlier, the Soviets had shot down a Korean airliner, killing everyone on board, including a United States congressman. President Ronald Reagan declared the Soviet Union an evil empire and declared a new arms race. Soviet President Yuri Andropov expected an American attack any day now. Petrov was a few hours into his shift when suddenly the Communist government's brand new state-of-the-art satellite system screamed an alarm. It detected that America had just launched five nuclear-armed intercontinental ballistic missiles on a trajectory for the Soviet Union estimated time of impact? 20 minutes. Petrov had to act fast. Protocol was to immediately notify his superiors up the chain of command, then, if so ordered, launch an all-out nuclear retaliation to utterly destroy the North American continent in fire, hurricane winds, and boiling radiation. The same fate the Soviets faced in 19 minutes now. But Petrov paused Something inside him whispered that something was wrong here, so he made the stunning decision to not place that call to his superiors. His subordinates in the room freaked out but Petrov stayed firm, though he couldn't explain why. His decision was all based on a gut instinct. And if he chose wrong, Petrov would be the man who killed millions of his own people. After the longest, most agonizing wait of their lives, they finally realized there were no American missiles. Their new, state-of-the-art satellite system had malfunctioned. Petrov had defied all orders, protocol, and military training on a hunch and saved the world from nuclear annihilation. Still don't believe me that one person can change the course of history? Then take 19-year-old Gavrilo Princip. An ordinary university student, Gavrilo was hanging around the corner of Quay and Franz Josef Strasse in Sarajevo, Bosnia on June 28, 1914. A flashy, expensive car, a grafumstift double Phaeton convertible, pulled to a stop not six feet from him. The convertible top was down, so Gavrilo could see, sitting in the back, None other than the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his lovely wife, Sophie, visiting from Austria. Earlier that same day, the royal couple had survived an assassination attempt when a Serbian terrorist threw a bomb at them in that same car. But the bomb hit the folded convertible top and rolled off, wounding an officer and some bystanders. And now, in a symbolic F.U. to the terrorists, the Archduke and Sophie had impulsively decided to visit the wounded in the hospital but their driver got lost in this unfamiliar city, so he stopped at this corner, where Gavrilo was just hanging out to check the map. Did I happen to mention that Gavrilo Princip was in the same terrorist organization as that morning's assassin? So Gavrilo pulled his gun and shot the archduke and his wife, killing them both. This provoked Austria-Hungary to declare war on Serbia, who then called up their respective allied nations with just two twitches of his finger. This lone, angry 19-year-old student caused the deaths of 18 million in the global cataclysm that came to be called World War I. See, told you. One ordinary person can change history for good or bad. And those are only two examples that we know of. How many heroes, or villains, are there throughout history who we don't know about? I would like to present a case of one such unknown hero who changed the course of world history and who still haunts his ancestral home. I'm Diane Ladley, America's ghost storyteller, and this is The Ghost Who Saved the World, episode 10 in my monthly podcast series Hysterie history's eeriest true ghost stories. If you like what you hear, click the subscribe button to get future episodes automatically downloaded for free from your favorite podcast app. And be sure to tell your friends about this spooky new podcast, Hysterie. It's history of fallen forgotten heroes. There's a grand mansion on the hill above downtown Naperville, Illinois. It kind of looks like Terra from Gone with the Wind, all white with tall pillars, sprawling half a city block deep and backing up to the town's central park. Now called the Jefferson Hill Shops, consisting of offices, trendy boutiques, restaurants, and an Irish pub, this impressive colonnaded building first began as a one-story cottage built in 1845. At the turn of the century, its owner, Francis Kendall, built this elegant Greco-Roman-style mansion we see today, actually building it up around the original cottage. In fact, when you walk into Quigley's Irish pub and hang a quick right, you're walking into the cottage's original 1845 root cellar, beautifully maintained with its rough plaster walls and dark wood ceiling beams. Appropriately enough, it's called the cottage room, and it's crazy haunted. Late at night, long after customers have gone home and the doors are locked, employees of Quigley's Irish pub will report hearing peculiar sounds emanating from the cottage room. Men's voices, talking, laughing, though oddly distant and muffled. They'll smell heavy cigar smoke and, strangest of all, they'll hear the distinct sound of billiard balls clicking together like somebody's playing a game of pool. The pub doesn't have a pool table. There isn't one in the whole building, and there's a strict no-smoking policy. Baffled, the employees will peek into the cottage room, but the sounds will stop. Even the cigar smoke is simply gone without lingering, and they'll find a chair pulled down from off the table where they had put it up for the cleaning staff, as if someone were sitting there, but no one had touched it. You won't be surprised to learn that old Francis Kendall had converted that root cellar into a billiard room, where his family and their friends often gathered for a night of relaxation. One of the ceiling lights in the pub's cottage room, the one above the wall clock, sometimes flickers off and on independently from the other lights on that circuit. The occurrence can last anywhere from a minute up to several hours. I've personally witnessed it myself. The odd flickering and flashing is irregular. Kind of makes me think of, like, Morse code. Electricians have replaced the wiring, the unit, the light bulb again and again, but still, every now and then, it'll start flashing again. Pub customers report that it flashes more frequently when the table conversation turns to tales of the resident ghost. The ladies' restroom is haunted. One night, when closing up, two female employees were startled to hear the motion-activated hand dryer in the ladies' restroom suddenly going off, though no one was in there and the bathroom door was locked. I've used that hand dryer myself, and I could testify you need to wave your hands around like a cheerleader before that dryer will notice you standing there. It's not going to go off from just some bug flying by the sensor. And yet, that night, it did detect something standing in front of it. In a dark, locked, and empty bathroom. But the scariest events often happen on Saturday nights long after everyone has gone home and the entire building is securely locked and dark. That's when the pub manager sits alone in her office down in the mansion's creepy, gloomy, 160-year-old basement counting the day's take. Sometime between the hours of 2 o'clock and 3.30 a.m., she'll hear a door open and close, open and close, coming from somewhere up inside the empty house above. She'll pick up a baseball bat and cautiously climb upstairs, searching for the intruder. She'll check all the doors of the shops and offices and find them locked, but she'll still clearly hear a door open and close. Sometimes even right down the hallway from where she's standing, yet never see anything or get any closer to the source. It's as if it's coming from nowhere on this plane of existence. It's believed that the ghost haunting Quigley's Irish pub and the mansion is Francis Kendall's son, Oliver Julian Kendall. But everybody called him Judd. I'll post a photo of him in his uniform on the Hysterie.com website and Facebook page. I think you'll agree he was a very handsome man. Ooh, Yet I see a deep sadness in his eyes, as if he knew even then what his fate would be, awaiting him across the sea in a faraway land. Born December 30th, 1888, Judd was an engineer working for the Burlington Northern Railroad when Gavrilo Princip assassinated the Archduke and his wife, setting off the powder keg that was the Baltic region in the summer of 1914. By the end of that year, the British Empire, France, and Tsarist Russia faced off against Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, and the Kaiser's German Empire. In the two years that followed, Americans paid little attention, even as more nations on every continent around the world Japan, the Ottoman Empire, started joining in on the fight. America was safe from conquest thanks to vast oceans on both sides. The US was determined to stay out of the fight, especially when death tolls reached an incomprehensible scale. Songs like I Didn't Raise My Boy to Be a Soldier was popular in every home and music hall from coast to coast. To be my pride and joy. What the rest of the world did was none of our business. In fact, their war was very good for our business. America was getting filthy rich by selling arms, ammunition, and supplies to both sides of the conflict. But in 1915, to cut off that source of weapons to England and France, the Germans declared unrestricted warfare against all ships, even merchant vessels and private ships from neutral countries. Then, a German submarine sank the British ocean liner, Lusitania, without warning against all laws of the sea. Of the nearly 1,200 passengers drowned, 128 were Americans. Remember the Lusitania became a rallying cry for enraged Americans, one that grew louder with each new ship that the German submarines torpedoed and sank to the bottom. The anti-war song, I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier, battled with new pro-war songs such as, it's time for every boy to be a soldier, in every parlor and every American home. Judd Kendall knew that America would soon have to take sides. It's time for every boy to be a soldier, to put his strength and hurry to the test. It's time to place a musket on his shoulder. And wrap the, and around its the last straw was a telegram intercepted between Germany and Mexico. In it, the German Kaiser Wilhelm II offered to help Mexico reclaim their lost territories of Arizona, Texas, and New Mexico. In exchange, they wanted Mexico to attack America, distracting the U.S. from entering the overseas conflict. Combined with Germany's ruthless, unrestricted submarine warfare against even hospital and passenger ships from neutral nations, this Zimmermann telegram rose the pro-war voices to a fever pitch. In November 1916, President Woodrow Wilson was re-elected to a second term, riding on the campaign slogan, He kept us out of the war. But just four months later, April 2nd, 1917, Wilson officially declared war against the German Empire. Judd Kendall was among the first to sign on. He was a First Lieutenant of the First Engineers in the First Division, and he was on the first boat across the Atlantic as part of the American Expeditionary Force under the command of Major General John Blackjack Pershing. Expeditionary being the key word. This was an exploratory excursion, testing out the viability of this adventure, because there were still a vast number of Americans who adamantly argued against war. It's hard for us to believe nowadays, but back then, the United States Army wasn't considered to be much help to the heavily beleaguered Allied forces in France and England. Our new forces were eager and well armed, but untrained and untested. Our commanders, many of whom were children during the Civil War, had experience fighting Native American Indians, but not modern campaigns of this scale. Apaches and Comanches didn't have tanks, machine guns, and mustard gas. This expeditionary force would be the first time a U.S. military power would appear on the global stage, and that made our allies, and our government, very nervous. If these first 27,000 men failed to make a good showing on that stage, If they lost their first big battle, the anti-war cries would rise up and drown out the pro-war supporters. President Woodrow Wilson might decide the war, over there, wasn't worth American lives, call back the troops, and the demoralized, heavily outgunned, nearly bankrupt forces of Great Britain and France would fall to the German Kaiser's army. The location of the Americans' critical first solo battle was set. A once lovely village in the French countryside north of Paris, Cantini, was currently the furthermost western front of the German offensive. The Germans were deeply entrenched there, ideally positioned high on a tall hill above the war-ravaged farm fields. It was anticipated the Germans would launch their much-dreaded third wave of attacks out of Cantini come spring. General Pershing was keenly aware his expeditionary forces were the tip of a spear that could easily break off if support back home wavered. So in April 1918, at the Allied headquarters at Chateau Chaumont, three days march from the front, Pershing gave a rousing speech to the radio listeners back home. 3,000 miles from home, an American army is fighting for you. Everything you hold worthwhile is at stake. Only the hardest blows can win against the enemy we are fighting. Invoking the spirit of our forefathers, the Army asks your unflinching support to the end that the high ideals for which America stands may endure upon the earth. In the early pre dawn hours of May 25th, 1918, Judd Kendall was leading his unit in a field outside of Cantini, digging and outfitting trenches for the Americans' first big battle in three days' time, though the actual date was a strictly guarded secret. In Judd's pocket was a map detailing the secrets of their defensive fortifications, locations of trenches, bridges, ammunition and supply depots, troop movements, and more, secrets entrusted to him as an officer of the engineers, priceless information in enemy hands. Suddenly, a German sniper's bullet shot out from the darkness. Judd's men scattered and dived into the trenches. For the next thirty minutes, the sniper pinned them in place. Finally, Judd put his second-in-command in in charge, then slipped out of the trench and crawled his way, inch by agonizing inch on his belly, through the slick mud and barbed wire of no-man's land, soon vanishing from sight. His plan was to reconnoiter behind the sniper's position in a wide, slow arc to take him out. Back in the trenches, men waited. They heard a noise like shovels dropping, then nothing. They waited some more, but Judd never came back. To his men, he had vanished like a ghost in the mist and shadow of that dark early morning. Was he dead, captured? No one knew. Judd Kendall was lost. of Lieutenant Judd Kendall's possible capture by the enemy was the worst possible news to General Pershing. Officer training included lessons in eating paper in case they were captured and needed a fast way to destroy documents to keep out of enemy hands. If the Germans had retrieved that map from Judd's body, or if Judd were quick enough to have eaten that map but subsequently spilled what he knew under torture, it would cost the Americans the element of surprise, that most essential ingredient to battlefield success. Worse, the Germans could set a trap to wipe out the young American army even as they formed up for the attack, humiliate those upstart Americans into slinking back home with their tails between their legs, never to question the might of the German army again. Such an epic defeat would scare off other nations from joining the war. It would utterly demoralize the French, who would be bankrupt and crushed by the end of the spring. The British Empire would fall soon after. Germany would own Europe, but only if they got that critical information from Judd one way or another. The international rules of war concerning treatment of prisoners was unclear. The Hague Convention of 1917 really didn't address torture. It did strictly prohibit using chemical weapons and dropping bombs out of balloons, yet here on the Cantini battlefield, the Germans were lobbing shells of mustard gas from airplanes. But would they stoop to using torture? General Pershing was grimly sure they would. Judd was captured on the 25th, and the attack was set for the 28th. Who could stand up under sustained torture for three whole days? What a terrible dilemma Pershing faced. He knew the world was watching what the Americans could do at Cantini. They must not falter in their resolve, not now. And yet, if the Germans knew the pivotal details of their defenses extrapolate their attack strategy, unchangeable at this late date, his brave, proud men, some only 17-year-old boys, would run right into the hidden jaws of the German traps and be chewed to bits. What would the American public have to say then? Pershing almost called the entire battle off, but after a long, hard look into his soul, he decided to put his trust in Judd, then prayed that he didn't just make the worst mistake of his life. On Judd's shoulders rested the lives of 12,000 American soldiers, the future of America, Europe, and the history of the world. On the morning of May 28, 1918, the Americans attacked the deeply entrenched German army in the village of Cantini, and to their surprise, there was no trap. There was hell, dark, bewildering, brutal, terrifying, merciless hell, but no trap. Whatever had happened to Judd Kendall after he vanished into the darkness three days before, the Germans did not get the information that would have decimated the new American army. But they came razor wire close to doing it anyway. For the first time, American soldiers faced the true horrors of modern warfare. No more muskets, cannons, bows, and arrows. This day was a kind of grotesque birthday into the 20th century, with gifts of new weapons for killing each other. There was mustard gas, called the King of the Battle Gasses, missing from canisters either dropped from above or secretly buried in no man's land that detonated when the trap was triggered. It blinds eyes and sears lungs, induces vomiting up pools of blood, and causes the skin to boil with melting blisters, primarily in the armpits and genitals. When these popped, unsanitary battlefield conditions inevitably infected each blistered area with rot and gangrene. Artillery too had evolved, with the introduction of machine guns capable of shredding a human body into bloody scraps. Or the flamethrower is completely in the victim from 50 yards away. Yet even worse were the high-explosive concussive mortar bombs that achieved three primary results. One, the total and instant destruction of a human body into a cloud of bloody particles. Two, pounding the defensive earth trenches into smears on the ground, burying men alive under six feet of dirt. And the third creepiest result of high-impact, concussive detonations? It leaves the corpse on the outside seemingly untouched, whole without hardly any wound. But on the inside, every bone and internal organ is pulverized into a jellied, soft pulp. Lifting the body is like carrying a sack filled with beads and blood. After a two-hour advance artillery barrage of heavy guns, flamethrowers, and tanks, the Americans took the village of Cantini from the Germans. The Huns counterattacked seven times over the next two days, and the American situation turned desperate. At one point, even General Pershing's confident mask fell, and in a letter to his second-in-command wrote, The world is watching, and we must continue to hold Cantini at all costs. The U.S. forces held their position by sheer willpower and the skin of their teeth. In the end, they did eventually win, and the Germans retreated. Pershing's forces at Cantini had captured 100 German prisoners, yet suffered the loss of 1,076 casualties. When the victory was announced, the French high command was reported to have danced on the tables with ecstatic relief that the Americans were indeed the valiant, successful saviors that they had prayed for. America went wild with joy at the victory. Enlistment offices across the nation couldn't keep up with the number of excited new applicants. America was now fully committed to the cause, all because we had won at Cantini. All because of Judd Kendall. Cantini was the turning point in the World War. Just six months later, on November 11th, 1918, Germany now decimated and demoralized by the ferocity of the fresh American forces, signed an armistice, ending hostilities. Eighteen million people had died in the four years of the war, military and civilians alike, in a clash that impacted every continent but Antarctica. America lost a little under 117,000 men in the conflict called the War to End All Wars. Except, turns out, It was just a warm-up for an even deadlier world war, 21 years later. Two years after the armistice, a French farmer discovered a hidden grave in his field of clover, a few miles outside of Cantini. Bodies of the dead often turned up, but this corpse was different. Instead of having simply fallen in battle, it had been laid to rest, wrapped in a blanket in a shallow-dug grave. The dog tag in his pocket read, Oliver Julian Kendall. Judd had been found at long last. The body itself hinted at his fateful story. When he vanished in that misty no-man's land on May 25th, seeking the sniper that threatened his men, he had been captured by a German raiding party. Knowing this marked the end of his life, Judd still had the quickness of mind to eat the priceless map he carried marking the American defensive fortifications. Having failed to stop him in time, the Germans took him to their headquarters a few miles behind the front lines, and there they did everything they knew to make him talk. What did they promise Judd, if only he cooperate? Money? A new life in Germany after they conquered Europe? And finally, did they promise to end the pain quickly, grant him an easy death? Judd refused it all, enduring three days of sustained physical and mental torture. The gruesome details are sketchy, but we do know, for example, that nine of his teeth had been forcibly pulled out. The teeth were the only things that came out of his mouth certainly not a word of the secrets he knew. Oh, how it must have frustrated the German officers. As dawn rose on May 28th and the Americans attacked, they had no more use for their prisoner. A German soldier stepped behind Judd, grabbed his hair, yanked his head back, and cut his throat ear to ear with one swift arc of a knife, bathing the front of Judd's uniform shirt in blood. Maybe Judd was smiling a little around his mangled lips, knowing that he had won, even in death. Maybe he even earned respect from the enemy for his grit and determination, because they took time to dig that shallow grave in the field of sweet clover and wrap him in a blanket, carefully tucking his identifying dog tags into his blood-soaked pocket, so that someday his loved ones might learn of what had become of their brave young son. Judd Kendall was only 28 years old. Judd's mother, Lily May Kendall, who had also lost her husband the same year as her son, had been forced to wait a long time for news of her missing son's fate. When word finally came, it must have been a terrible day of both fresh grief and relief. A simple stone monument was placed in the family cemetery plot, but Judd is not there. He's buried with his brothers-in-arms at the Somme American Cemetery in France, a peaceful lovely place of identical white marble tombstones standing in neat military straight rows amid the rolling countryside of northern France the smallest yet perhaps the most beautiful of the five cemeteries dedicated exclusively for those Americans who died saving France in World War I. Every year without fail, the French people gather to lay wreaths of poppies on every grave, Judds included, in humble thanks at their ultimate sacrifice on their behalf over 100 years ago. In August of 1919, after Judd's body had been recovered, Captain Shipley Thomas of the 1st Division, Judd's unit, wrote a condolence letter to Linnie Mae Kendall. Thomas's words expressed the true enormity of what Judd's extraordinary resolve accomplished. He wrote, Everyone knew if the Germans could gain the slightest information of the impending attack, they would have wiped out the 1st Division as it was forming for the attack. Upon your son hung the lives of 12,000 infantry of the 1st Division. He called Judd's willingness to accept death rather than compromise his men's safety and the mission, the most vital single incident of the entire war. The Chicago Tribune hailed Judd Kendall as the Nathan Hale of World War I, comparing him to the American Revolutionary War hero hanged by the British for refusing to reveal American secrets, and who reportedly said on the gallows, I regret I have but one life to give to my country. Nathan Hale is in the history books, Judd Kendall is not. It took 80 years, but eventually, on Memorial Day 1998, Judd was posthumously presented with no less than five different medals, including the coveted Silver Star and three from a grateful French government. Later, he was also awarded a sixth medal, the POW Medal, honoring his sacrifice as a prisoner of war. We can only imagine the anguish, pain and terror Judd endured in those last three days of his life. It said that when you're being tortured, you need to go deep into your mind, removing yourself from what your body is going through. Perhaps that's what Judd did in those final three days, journeying into his mind back to his family home, the place where he was born, where all his beloved family and friends are. Maybe in his mind's eye, he was down in his home's old root cellar with his buddies, laughing, drinking beer, smoking cigars, shooting pool like he had done countless times before and he'll pull out a chair to sit down and relax. Maybe in his mind, he was walking down the halls of the mansion, opening each door to peek in on the sleeping faces of his two younger brothers and three sisters, closing each door, opening, closing, opening, closing. Maybe Judd Kendall is still there today, in Quigley's Irish pub, trying to communicate with us with that erratically flashing single ceiling light. Could it be Morse code? And maybe he can't resist peeking in on the beautiful women primping in the mirror of the ladies' room. But don't worry, he wouldn't look in the stalls. Judd was a true officer and a gentleman. So you see, any ordinary, average John or Jane Doe from the suburbs has the power to change the course of human events. Maybe it will be your destiny someday. Until then, if you ever get the chance to sit in at the cottage room at Quigley's Irish Pub in Naperville, Illinois, raise a glass in a solemn toast to Oliver Julian Kendall, Judd, the man who single-handedly changed the course of history and saved the world, because being remembered is the greatest honor any soldier could ask for. Hysteria is written, researched, and produced by me, Diane Ladley, America's ghost storyteller. To see a photo of Judd Kendall in his uniform, visit my website at hysteria.com. That's H-I-S-T-E-E-R-I-E dot Don't forget the dash. There you'll find music and sound effects credits, references, suggested reading, and past episodes. And if you're able, please click the Send Diane a Tip link to help support future episodes. You could choose to pledge a little every month through Patreon.com or give a one time tip on PayPal. I hope you liked this episode about Jed Kendall's ghost. If so, would you do me a favor, take a quick second to hop on Apple Podcasts and give me a starred rating and a few nice words? Then subscribe to Hysteria to not miss a single new episode. The subscription is totally free. You see, the better the reviews and more subscribers I get, the more Apple Podcasts will promote Hysteria. I would be so grateful for any and all help you could give. And thank you, as always, for listening to Hysteria. It's history of fallen forgotten heroes.